Well, thank you, church. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to try to keep going on right through this today. Um, don't have a particular Palm Sunday-focused passage, but as it turns out, this passage does have some things that sort of correlate at least to this week, uh, the Passion Week that we're entering. And just a note on that, the Passion Week series I did do uh, live the last two years. Uh, what I'm doing this 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 um, week is I will be emailing out the one I did last year. So I'm just going to just uh, rather than redo it live, I'll just send the link out Monday and Tuesday. Uh, you'll have those and also on Thursday. And hopefully there'll be a blessing to you. I did re-look it up to make sure they were accessible and how to, how to email them out. I will apologize in advance. I remember now the one we did on Monday last year, we had technical difficulties, so it was grainy and we had issues at the beginning. So I'm talking for the first few minutes saying, apologizing about the technical difficulties. So you have to kind of wade through that, but, but I, I encourage you to tune in because what we do is we walk through um, what Jesus walked through. We follow Jesus through the whole Passion Week, where he went, what he said, what he did, and why he did what he did. So I hope that'll be encouraging to you and it'll lead up really well to the Good Friday uh, service, and I pray that you can come together for that. Well, last week we looked briefly at Jesus as our great high priest. The subject was introduced to us here in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Just those three verses introduced to us something really important. It introduced to us the heart of this whole book. Yes, the overall theme of this book is Jesus is better, that he's better than anything. But the main focus of, of almost half of this book is about Jesus's priesthood. It's a very specific uh, uh, picture that the author is trying to get across here. Chapters 5 through 9 are going to focus on that fact more than anything else. It's his superior priesthood, which makes the new covenant better than the old. So last week, the, the, the last week's study was, would, really could be looked at as sort of an introduction, if you want to say it that way, an introduction to this, this theme, that Jesus is a better high priest uh, of a new, better covenant. Last week, we looked at these few points. Number one, that he was divine. He's a divine priest. He didn't have to pass through those three earthly doorways. Remember, we looked at the picture of the tabernacle, three earthly doorways of the tabernacle to enter into the Holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. No, Jesus passed through the heavens. And we looked at that, the three heavens, the, the atmosphere, which is the sky, the space, and then into the dwelling place of God himself, into his very presence he came straight to the Father. Earthly high priests came only into that little room where that glory cloud uh, dwelt. And there they had to offer the blood of a bull for his own sin first, and then the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. But then he would be back again a year later to do all that over again. Every year that high priest had to do the same thing over and over again. But Jesus was both the high priest, but also the sacrifice and he offered himself as that perfect sacrifice, and it was a once-for-all sacrifice. He was perfect because he never sinned, but as a man, he experienced the same trials, the same weaknesses, the same temptations that uh, we do, yet uh, he never caved into those temptations. But it allows him to be a sympathetic high priest. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands us far from those gods that are sort of aloof and unreachable and unapproachable. We have a God who understands us because he 
was one of us. Incredible, isn't it, to know that? So we actually have this a wonderful relationship with uh, our, our high priest, Jesus. Now, in addition to that, we looked at that this perfect sacrifice of Christ opened up to us something pretty amazing. We walked into the throne room of grace last week. Do you remember that? We looked at the throne and how that would have been sort of maybe a, uh, uh, maybe a, a terror-filled moment to be in the throne room of God, but we don't have to be afraid to enter the throne room of God. We can boldly approach the Father because of the doorway has been opened, the veil has been torn by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and so we can come to come to the Father, and he offers grace, and he offers mercy. So that was really the introduction. Jesus is a better high priest. Chapter 5 now is going to develop that argument further. If Jesus was indeed a high priest, and uh, he functioned as such, then he would need to meet some, some qualifications, as the other high priests had to have qualifications. So what are those qualifications of a high priest? That's what this section begins to answer. So we're looking at today high priestly qualifications, high priestly qualifications, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. So let me read it today. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful passage that we have before us today. We recognize today that this is your word, the holy word of God. And uh, Lord, you have meant for us to understand your word. It is not beyond our understanding, even when we come to things that are hard to understand. And so we just pray today that your spirit would be with us, that you would guide us into truth, that we would leave today more knowledgeable of your truth. But also, Lord, just more enraptured with the thought of Jesus Christ as our wonderful high priest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, really easy outline today. We're just looking at the qualifications of these priests. And the first is the qualifications of the earthly priests. And that's what he begins to list for us today. The qualifications of the earthly priests come to us first. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right here, we come with the very first qualification, a very simple one. Most of the men in this room would qualify. You had to be a man. (laughs) He had to be a man. And I don't mean man in terms of uh, male, but that would be the case. But I mean human. He had to be a human being. 
The whole fact that Jesus came as our great high priest answers that wonderful question, and maybe you've heard that question come to you before. Why did Jesus have to become a man? If he really was God, if he's really the third person of the Trinity, wouldn't it have been easier for him to just sort of come down and go right to that cross? Have you heard this one before? Right. Die for our sins and go right back up. Why come as a man? Well, because Jesus had to be a man. He had to become our high priest. And this is really the argument the author of Hebrews is giving us. The whole argument here is going to answer that question. And the earthly priest had to be a man. Notice it says he was taken from among men. Even angels, we've looked at angels before here. Angels would not be suitable high priests because they don't have the same nature as a man. They don't experience the same temptations as men. And therefore, they cannot truly identify with man or understand them. But Jesus came as a man so that he could identify with us. The priest needed to be a man. And why? It says here, he is appointed for men. He had to be human because he was representing human beings. He was a representative for the human race. And as man's representative, it was of paramount importance that he understand men. So he was a from among, a from among men, and he was for men. And when you think back to the Levites, they were the first priests. When you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and you talk about the coming of the priesthood, this phrase is used over and over again, that they were chosen from among the children of Israel. They had to be chosen from among them because they had to be men. They had to be humans. And to do what? Well, it says, in things pertaining to God. Their role were things specifically pertaining to God. Really, what this is saying, that they were the mediators. This is what their role was. They handled things pertaining to man's relationship with God. How do you maintain a proper relationship with God? Well, you really couldn't do it back then without the aid of a priest. You couldn't approach God. You couldn't go into that Holy of Holies. Remember those three rooms? You couldn't go back there. The high priest had to do that for you. They were the ones chosen to represent you to God. Take a look at Exodus 28, verse 1. This is where it begins. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. There's that phrase. That he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So there we see that's Aaron, and it is, it, it, he's supposed to be the representative, and, and also his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, uh, Ithamar, they're going to be the, the, the priests that would be ministering um, in the presence of God. And later in Numbers, it says this about them, thus, yeah, thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. They're specifically for God to represent uh, the people. They're men chosen from among men in things pertaining to God. God said they're going to be mine. And these things that pertain to God really boil down to the two things mentioned there in verse 1, gifts and sacrifices. He may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. What are gifts? What kind of gifts? Well, we do come across some of those things. If you wanted to turn to Leviticus chapter 7, we'll be turning around uh, to a few places today, so just get ready for that. Maybe mark your place in Hebrews and come back to it. But Leviticus chapter 7, just to give you an example of what might have been considered a a gift, a gift offering. 
the, the, the Levites were responsible still for offering these things. In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Verse 13, besides the cakes as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. That would have been a gift, uh, an offering specifically to be thankful to the Lord for his provision. But then you also have, as the role of the priest, the, the, the offering of sacrifices for sins. And those would have been the animal sacrifices, specifically described as offerings that would atone for sin. Burnt offerings, sin offerings, things like that. And that really sums up the role of the high, the high priest. He, he took the things from you. So on your behalf, he took them to God. He would go into the Holy Holies where you couldn't go or I couldn't go. And he would go in there. And he would offer those things to him on your behalf. He is a man from among men whose function is the operation of things specifically pertaining to God. He facilitated those things and he had to be a man. The second thing we learn in verse two is that he had to be compassionate. Look at verse two. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Now that word have compassion there is only used, well, only used here in the New Testament. It is an interesting word, metropotheo, <laughs> something like that. Um, and it really means to have a, a moderation of your passions, to be able to control your passions, to deal gently with uh, others. Back in chapter 4, verse 15, we were told that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Sympathize with our weaknesses. Well, this is a different word than that word. That word was sympatheo. That is to be affected by the feelings of another. But this word, have compassion, is a different word. The priest needed to deal gently and to be able to deal gently with people who were ignorant and going astray. So in other words, he had to maintain a hold on his emotions when it came to others, and particularly when they were sinning in ignorance or being led astray. He couldn't be overcome by the extremes of anger or, or grief. Because in those extreme situations, he needed to keep that proper balance, not being too sympathetic, thereby, you know, be, being overcome, perhaps, by the situation, or being too apathetic, not even recognizing that uh, they, they, there was a problem they needed to respond to. They had to have compassion on the condition of man, which is why they needed to be a man. But notice it's important to note this, that they had to have compassion for those who were ignorant or going astray. Those two things are mentioned here. This means those who sin unintentionally or unknowingly and those who are going astray. Going astray, that word is planao, and it means to wander or to be led away into error. If you were to look up that word, you would find it in a very well-known passage about the man with the 100 sheep and one of them wandered away. And what is that man supposed to do? Leave the 99 and go in search of the one, right? That's the same word when that sheep went astray. The same idea is here. A high priest is to have compassion on those who would go astray. He had to be sensitive to that fact that they are easily led astray and to be willing to go after uh, that person. Notice even for those who sin unintentionally, sin in ignorance, 
God has shown compassion for people in that condition. Numbers 15, 28. Here's this verse. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. God had compassion on those who sinned in ignorance, who sinned unknowingly. But you know what? God did not have compassion for, for those who, sin, who willfully rebelled. You just read a few verses later, verses 30 to 31, and it says this, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. And he, he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. So for those who purposely break the law of God, who purposely rebelled against God, well, God dealt with them quite differently. But for those who were ignorant, those who were led astray, the high priest, he was to deal gently with them. Why? Since he himself is also subject to weakness, we're told. That word weakness is also translated infirmities all throughout Scripture. Because he's also weak. He also has an infirmity. What's the greatest infirmity of man? Sin. Because he's also a sinner. That's what he's saying. Because the high priest was a sinner. He can deal gently with others because he himself was a sinner. So he had to be a man. He had to have compassion on others simply because he was a man. He needed to deal gently with them. But also in verse 3, we learn that he had to offer sacrifice for sins. That was his role. Look at verse 3. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. You know, Leviticus 9, 7 lays this out. It says this, Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now, this is a a hard thing to think about in today's or into in that time because the high priest you got to you got to picture what this man must have looked like they had priestly garments you can go back and read about them in Exodus 28 29 great description of the the fabric and the thread and 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 the texture of all of these things he had a, a linen tunic that he would wear which was then covered up by a blue robe and attached to the hem were pomegranates and they were woven from blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and they were uh, placed intermittently between these small golden bells, and I mentioned the bells last week so that they could hear that the priest was still alive and he was still moving about within the tabernacle. He held all that together with a a sash. He had an ephod, which is a priestly uh, uh, apron that he would wear. It was woven of gold threads and blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and that was over uh, the robe. And then on the shoulders, he had these, these little uh, pieces that contain onyx stones. And on those stones, they were set in gold filigree, engraved were the 12 tribes of the, the Israel, six on each. And then he had this wonderful breastplate fastened in front by gold chains as well. And boy, this thing would look beautiful because it contained a tapestry of gold and blue scarlet linen that bore four rows of, of three stones each. And, and those were also had the names of the children of Israel on, on this. And then the last piece, you have all this wonderful, he had this beautiful turban on his head and had a gold plate on the front and it said, holiness to the Lord. What a sight that priest must have been, right? And yet, 
He wore all of that. He went through all that process of the washing and, and adorning all that wonderful uh, uh, clothing to walk into that place, and he still had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He wasn't holy to the Lord. The, the priest wasn't holy. He was a sinner. It was required even of him to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. This is going to be a big difference between the high priest that we're going to look at in a moment. So he had to be a man. He had to be compassionate. He had to offer sacrifices for sins for the people and for himself. And finally, we have in in verse 4, he had to be appointed by God. Look at verse 4. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, we already looked back at uh, Exodus 28 where God established the priesthood with the choosing of, of Aaron and his sons. But no one, no one chooses uh, to be a priest. It isn't an elected office in which uh, people chose the priest. It wasn't a democratic office in which someone could put their name forward as a priest. And we know that because, well, somebody tried to do that in Numbers 16. And I want to show it to you because it's a pretty graphic example. In Numbers chapter 16... There was a bit of a, a rebellion, and, uh, and this was a newly established thing. The priesthood was newly established. The Levites were chosen, and yet somebody came up and said, it, it doesn't just have to be uh, them. It, it can be any, any of us. We all can be priests. In number 16, look what it says here in verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Pelah, uh, and on the, son, on the son of Peloth and sons of Reuben, they took men and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Hmm, Moses and Aaron, you guys think you're up here, but we're all holy. Any of us can be priests. Any of us can do what you're doing. Who says that it can only be you? Well, God wasn't happy with that. He wanted to consume them, but but Moses is interceding. He says, listen, why don't you do this? Why don't you guys uh, come back tomorrow? And then what you can do is you can bring some guys, you can fill up these bronze censers uh, uh, with with incense, and we'll see who God chooses. And so that's what happens the next day. They they come up, and and Moses says, okay, this this is going to be the test. Um, God will choose who is to be the priest and who's to be the leaders and who's not. He's going to do something new. It can't be something he's done before. He he can't just strike you dead. He can't just shoot you with lightning. Something new, like, I don't know, the earth opening up and swallowing them. That's what he says. He's like, something new like that. And if he does that, you'll know that I'm the one that God has chosen. Now, think about that. That's just magnificent, isn't it? I will prove to you God has chosen me. And then he says, the earth is going to open up and eat people. Okay? Are you picturing it? Earth became Pac-Man. I mean, this is what I'm saying. And that's going to happen. And look at verse 31. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. 
So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. They probably didn't need to add that part because that's assumed. (laughs) And then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. These men were not priests. And so here you can see that God takes the priestly qualifications pretty seriously, doesn't he? He allowed them to be consumed. And there in verse 40, these bronze censers that are now laying there with no humans around them because they've been incinerated. He has them hammered into a memorial. In verse 40, it says to be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord. It cannot be an outsider. Why? God said it must be, he must come from the line of Aaron. God must choose the man is the point. God must choose the man. So those are the priestly earth of qualifications. He takes them very seriously. What about Jesus? We're going to look at Jesus now. Go back to our passage. Does Jesus meet these qualifications? Well, the author's going to proceed here to demonstrate that not only did Jesus meet these qualifications for high priest, but he exceeded them. Qualifications of the eternal high priest. We looked at the qualifications for the earthly high priest. Now we're looking at the qualifications for the eternal high priest. Look at verses 5 to 6. This is where it gets pretty interesting. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So just as Aaron was chosen by God to be priest, here we're told that uh, Jesus was as well. He did not glorify himself to become high priest. So Jesus was appointed by God. This is true. Now, this is true, just, just what we know of the humility of Jesus, just what we read in the Gospels about Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 54, Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. I'm not seeking honor. I'm not seeking those things. God, uh, I'm seeking to honor God. It's God who chooses, and God chose his Son. Now, the author as he often does, is going to give us two Old Testament passages as support for this statement, that that Jesus didn't choose it himself, that God appointed him. And here is the first one. It's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that should sound familiar. We've come across that, haven't we, already? Actually, I want to take you to where we've already looked at it. It's in chapter 1, and it's in verse 5. And this is why, because he's using it in the same context. Chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Now remember there, the argument was Jesus' superiority to angels. And the author was using that verse to show that Jesus was higher than the angels because he was called son. Uh, In fact, if you just went back to verse 4, of chapter 1 it says having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they so we said Jesus has a better name than even the angels well what name is that and then he gives this verse as a support you are my son today i have begotten you 
But this is a very strange verse to give as a support for Jesus being a high priest because it's support of Jesus being son, which doesn't refer to him being high priest. It refers to his kingship. It refers to Jesus being the son, the inheritor of all things, royalty. So why does he use this, 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 this verse? Very interesting. Well, this passage, uh, this, where it comes from, Psalm 2, has long been understood to refer to Messiah, to Messiah, to the coming king. And the author is saying that not only did Jesus hold the ultimate priestly office, but he also held the ultimate kingly office, the office of high priest and the office of king. And one example he gives here is Melchizedek. Look at verse 6. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a quote, you got to stick with me here. This is a quote from Psalm 110, which we've also seen before. Now not this verse in Psalm 110, but we've seen Psalm 110. This is actually Psalm 110 verse 4. We have looked at Psalm 110 verse 1, and it was back in verse 13 again to support the fact that Jesus is better than angels. I just want you to look at it. Chapter 1 verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? So that's Psalm 110 verse 1. And it refers to Jesus in that kingly role, okay, as the Davidic heir, the heir of King David, subduing the nations. His enemies are now his footstool. Does that make sense? He is now king over all of them. And then you keep reading Psalm 110, and it gets down to verse 4, and then it, it demonstrates there that that conquering king would also be a high priest, a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, everyone's thinking this, who is this Melchizedek guy, right? Are you thinking about that? Well, Scripture says very little about him. In fact, he's only mentioned 11 times in all the Bible, and nine of those times are here in Hebrews, talking about a guy that's mentioned somewhere else. Where else is he mentioned? Well, he's only mentioned in two other places. One of them was just quoted, Psalm 110, verse 4. So where is he first mentioned? Well, He's mentioned in Genesis 14. Now, because he will be discussed in great detail in chapter 7, I cannot go into it today because it'll ruin chapter 7. So guess what? You're just going to have to be in suspense a little longer. All right? But I'll give you this much. He was a king priest who lived the time of Abraham. And Genesis 14, 18 says this about him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high. Now, what should stick out to you in that verse? That he was a king of Salem and that he was the high priest. He was the priest of God most high. Now, here you can see why, why this verse is being, uh, being used. There was only one other time in Scripture where there would be a person who would be a king and a priest. And it was this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, of whom we know very, very little. Now, this is why this is important. The offices of king and priest, they were not to be mixed. A king could not do the work of a priest. And we have a couple of really tragic examples of that. And I want to take you to them so you understand this. King Saul is one of them. You have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 
1 Samuel chapter 13. In your Bibles, you'll want to check this out. This is really interesting. 1 Samuel 13. Now, Samuel is the, the priest. He is the prophet at this time. And Saul is the king, and he's the first king of Israel. And Samuel has uh, told him, Saul's uh, battling the Philistines. Samuel's told him that he'll come to him and he'll offer sacrifices, but just to wait for him. I'm coming. I'll come and do the, the work of a priest. Well, Saul, being Saul, is impatient and doesn't wait for Samuel. And we'll pick it up in chapter 13, verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Seems like a very trivial thing, doesn't it? Samuel doesn't come. The enemy's gathering. I'm feeling like my people are losing faith. They're starting to scatter. I better do something. I'll I'll just do the work of the priest. And, and, And God says, no, now I have to reject you as king because he's gone against God's command. Another example comes to us from 2 Chronicles. If you're in 1 Samuel, just go to the right, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 26. Now this one's, this one's pretty interesting as well. This is uh, coming to us from the King Uzziah who was reigning in Judah. King Uzziah. And it's at a time where he's built up his kingdom. He's p- feeling pretty strong. He's feeling prideful in all that he's done. In 2 Chronicles 26, 16, we hear what happens. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, get this, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. (laughs) They said, get out of here. He says, I'm out of here because he has leprosy. Now, you probably come across those passages and don't even think much about it and maybe even 
confused as to why these things were happening. God did not allow the offices of king and priest to mix. Why? Because he had established that the royal priesthood come from the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. But what about this Melchizedek guy back in Hebrews? He was a priest and he was a king. Listen, when did Melchizedek live? During the days of Abraham. Many, many centuries before this this priesthood was established. So we're dealing with something unique. We're dealing with a very unique priesthood here. Psalm 110 verse 4 says that the priesthood of the order or the kind of Melchizedek is a forever priesthood, a forever one. Well, that's not the order of Aaron because guess what? Aaron's priesthood, his work, that line ended in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. There's no forever happening there. Melchizedek was a king, whereas Aaron, he could not be king. He was only a priest. So what the author is saying here is Jesus' qualifications for priesthood exceed that of the earthly priest. He qualifies both as king, referring back to Psalm 2, you are my son. He has a better name. He is the king. And also as priest, because he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a eternal priesthood. And we'll dig into more about Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. But he was appointed uh, by God, and he was appointed by God to two eternal offices. So he's a better priest there. But also he meets the second qualification. Jesus was a man, look at verse 7, who in the days of his flesh. Well, there it is. Jesus had days of flesh. You know, his days of flesh were only a certain number of years. That's why it says days of flesh. Jesus existed eternally in the past, but he wasn't in the flesh. He, he's, he's God. He's a, he's, a, he's a person of the Trinity, isn't he? He's, he's not in the flesh. And guess what? He exists today, but he's also not in the flesh. He's in a glorified body. His days of flesh were a specific number of days. He, he d- existed in the flesh. And I think this is one of the, the, the verses that adds the greatest weight to the argument against docetism and other heresies that denied the humanity of Jesus, that he wasn't indeed flesh. We're told right here that he had days of flesh. And because he was flesh, that is what allowed him to sympathize with the weakness of man. Jesus could be compassionate just as the high priest was meant to be compassionate. And we'll see that right now. Jesus was compassionate. It's pointed out to verses 7 and 8. So in the days of his flesh, notice this, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, when we read that little phrase that he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, that should draw us to a specific example in the life of Jesus. Now, today's Palm Sunday, isn't it? This is the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus. He presents himself as Messiah to the people of Israel. But as you'll hear this week, by Thursday of this week, the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By Thursday of this week, he will be alone with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think we see something very similar to what is described here. And I want you to turn there. It's Matthew 26. Matthew 26. This is probably one of the greatest examples here of Jesus' humanity 
Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. This is after the upper room, after Jesus has shared the Passover with his disciples, after he has um, inaugurated the uh, Lord's Supper, after he has dismissed Judas to go betray him. He has left the room. He has crossed down through the Kidron Valley. He has come up the other side to the Garden of Gethsemane. It will be in this garden that Judas will bring the battalion of men to arrest him. This is what happens. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now we read that. We see that Jesus was sorrowful. We see that he was deeply distressed when he prayed. And we look back to our passage and it says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. Did we see that there? Are there vehement cries? Vehement means strong. It means violent. Did Jesus have violent cries and tears there? Well, guess what? This is why we have four Gospels, because Luke adds this amazing point. Luke 22, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I cannot imagine the kind of vehement cries and tears that were coming from Christ at that moment. Could you be more human in that moment? Cup, hour, those are metaphors for death. Jesus' death was approaching, and a violent and painful death it was going to be, and he knew it. And he was praying to him who is able to save him from death. Now, prior to this whole episode, Jesus predicted his death to his disciples. In John 12, 27, he said this, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, just prior, you see, Jesus seems more resolute, doesn't he? My soul is troubled. It is. But what am I going to do? Tell, tell, tell the Father to save me from this. This is why I've come. For this purpose, I've, I've come to this hour. So how could Jesus, on the one hand, want to say, Oh, Father, save me from this hour. Uh, take this cup from me. But on the other hand, say, Oh, but for this person, I ca- purpose, I came for it. This is why I'm here. You know what the answer is to that? He was fully God and he was fully man. That is the answer. Both are true. 
It's his humanity that wished to find another way. He was broken over the prospect of bearing the sin of man. He was devastated by the thought of his father forsaking him on the cross. And and so those days of his flesh, he felt weakness. He felt weakness of flesh. He, He felt the power of sin. He felt the weight of temptation. He cried. He felt sorrow. He agonized. He hurt. He grieved. In these things, he became our sympathetic, our compassionate high priest. That's the side, that's the humanity side. But in his role as son, he was able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Amazing. You know, Psalm 22 is the messianic psalm well known, which begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? It's those words that Jesus cried from the cross. That's why we know it's a messianic psalm. But later in verse 24 of that Psalm 22, we read these words. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard him. So on the one hand, you have Jesus on the cross saying, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. But then you get to Psalm 22, verse 24, and he says, but he heard him. But God heard him. And our passage says the same. Look what, it, look what it says. And he was heard because of his godly fear into verse 7. He was heard. How was it that God heard him? Because didn't Jesus die on the cross? If Jesus said, save me from this hour, but he died on the cross, how did God hear him? Now that's us, isn't it? That's us speaking. Oh, I pray to God. I pray that he would do this, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I didn't hear from him. Let me tell you, God always hears our prayers, and he always answers prayer. He just doesn't always answer the prayer the way you want it to be answered. <laughs> See, God heard his son, but guess what he, he heard? Not my will, but yours be done. And God said, that's I'm going to honor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that one. It is my will. It is for this purpose that you have come. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Jesus' prayer was heard. He would submit to the will of the Father, and he did. So even as the Son of God, God's Son, we're told here Jesus learned obedience from all this. Look at verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Again, this verse is emphasizing his humanity. There's no suggestion here that Jesus uh, disobeyed, that he was disobedient and that he had to learn obedience. He had to learn through suffering to remain perfectly obedient to the will of God, even in the midst of temptation, in the midst of weakness. All those things, that will cause suffering. You will suffer if you resist temptation. Thomas Schreiner, theologian, said this, He learned how to obey in the animal of human experience, as he experienced life day by day. In particular, he learned obedience in his sufferings. When suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it, to find another path where there is joy and refreshment. Jesus, however, learned how to trust God and do his will in the midst of his suffering. His first aim was not his own pleasure and comfort, but the will of God. The humanity side, if there's any other way, God, the other side, but not my will, yours 
be done. And he suffered because of that. He remained obedient in the midst of suffering. And because he remained obedient, we're told that he became perfected. Look at verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this is an interesting phrase, isn't it? We kind of came across something like this back in chapter 2, verse 10. It would be worth just looking at that really briefly. Chapter 2, verse 10, a very similar uh, thought. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there we're told that Jesus became the, the captain of our salvation when he was perfected through the sufferings. Here in our passage, we're told, told that, that having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. He was not made perfect in the sense that he needed improving. Jesus's nature didn't need to change. His person didn't need to change. He became perfect in his human experience. His, he, he became perfect in the sense that he completed the suffering all the way to the end. And what was the end? His death. Yet he never gave into temptation. He suffered, yet he never sinned. He remained perfectly obedient to the Father to the very end. And I want to take you to a passage in Romans really briefly, and we'll wrap up here. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Paul is laying out an argument uh, in comparing Adam, what comes from Adam, and what comes with, uh, from Christ. He's comparing Adam with, with Christ. And in Romans chapter 5, Verse 17, he says this, For if by the one man's offense, this would be Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. You see, there it is. Jesus was obedient to the end, obedient to the will of the Father. And because, he was, he, because of that, he was perfected. He becomes our perfect high priest, but he also becomes the perfect sacrifice for sin. Like the high priest that had to offer sacrifice for sin, Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice for sin. But unlike the high priest, Jesus did not need to offer one for himself. He offered himself for all. That's the incredible thing. He offered the perfect sacrifice. And because he did that and no sacrifice, no further sacrifices needed, we're told he became the author of of eternal salvation. That word author, ahitas, it just means cause, the originator. He opened the way of eternal salvation. So the way of salvation is open. It's open to all. Notice what it says, who obey him. Now, this doesn't mean that salvation is only open to those who are who, who perfectly obey Christ, who obey all the, all the commandments. No, this is, this is what Paul refers to as the obedience of the faith. Those who obey the gospel, those who respond to the gospel. Another way to say, those who believe. John 6, 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's, that's it. 
Eternal salvation is open to all who believe. You know, Paul says that there are two responses to the gospel. It's actually found in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, which we're going through uh, in men's study. So we've read this verse many a time. But talks about Jesus coming back in judgment with his angels. And it says this, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, on the one hand, there might be some who say, you know, I, I know God. Listen, knowing God's not enough. Do you obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do, do you believe in it? Do you accept it? You know, there's two responses there. And, and, and Jesus is going to judge both of those. If you don't know God and if you don't obey the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ, well, he's coming in flaming fire to take vengeance, he says. Listen, the way of eternal salvation, that's been opened, and it's been opened by the greatest high priest who ever was, who made the perfect sacrifice for sin. And just in case we didn't get it, he hits us one more time with this high priest in verse 10, that he was called by God, chosen again, right? As high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. According to that order, where he would be a high priest forever. Here's what that means. Today, Many centuries later, Jesus is still interceding for you and I. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He still acts as high priest, not to sacrifice sin any longer. That is done. Remember, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because his work is done. But he sits there to intercede. He still mediates in that that sense. Why? Because he's a compassionate high priest. We can still go to him in our weakness, in, in, in our failings, and say, Jesus, I need you. And we're, we're told that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. An amazing high priest we have. The earthly priest, that beautiful picture we had at the beginning with the wonderful robes and the ephod and the, the breastplate and the stones and all that magnificent gold threads and even the turban with holiness to the Lord. What a priest he must have been. But listen, he was only a man. Today, look at Jesus, our great high priest. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the wonderful comparison we're given here in Scripture between these these earthly men whom you chose, men you chose to be mediators for your people, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people that you might patiently, Lord, uh, allow the sin to continue. It would be temporarily atoned for because you are a patient, loving God. For the time where you would send the perfect sacrifice, that you would send Jesus as a man to be the priest to end all priests, the high priest, the great high priest, the eternal high priest who today intercedes for us. What a high priest we have in Jesus. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray today and through this week as we begin to contemplate the, the coming of Christ into Jerusalem and his proclamations and all that he did and said and, said and, and how that leads ultimately to the cross, Lord, we know what comes beyond that. What comes beyond that is an empty tomb. And so, Lord, we know that's because Jesus has the victory, the victory over sin and the victory over death. So may this week, Lord, you just bless us with a special fellowship of your spirit this week that we might walk with you in in this Passion Week, thinking highly of you. Because ultimately, Lord, yes, it led to the cross, but ultimately it led to you sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high because your work was done. It's complete. Uh, We love you. We praise you. Thank you for this time in the word. I just pray that your people would leave today encouraged and refreshed. 
by your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.